you think it's safe to ask them? Hear me. All you hosts gathered here. <laughs> Kill everyone now. Condone first-degree murder. Advocate cannibalism. Eat shit. Well, I think we're about ready. Quiet, everyone. Filth are my politics. Filth is my life. From the whispers of the damned, deep within the bowels of hell, welcome to Astro Radio Z. Listeners, marks a 10-year anniversary for me and one of my guests. 10 years ago, I was commissioned by this dear, lovely, enchanting gentleman (laughs) to to edit a documentary based upon the Slumber Party Massacre movies entitled Sleepless Nights Revisiting the Slumber Party Massacres. Who was this individual? This very powerful and sexy individual. Mr. Oh. Jason Paul Collum is on the program, <laughs> folks. Jason, say hello to my listeners. Hello, listeners. They're all and they're just hearing crickets like, who? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm famous, damn it. 
Well, <laughs> if they don't know who you are, then why are they listening to my show? You've been on my right. show a number of times at this exactly, point. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so alongside him is what I would probably call one of my top three super fans of Astro Radio Z. This man admits, and this is shocking to me, and it'll probably shock everyone. <laughs> this man admits to actually listening to every episode of this podcast. I don't know what's psychologically wrong with this individual, but he admits to this fact. This is, if you've been listening over the last year or two, you've been hearing segments of him from this mysterious transmission called the Lurking Transmission. Mr. Evan Shelton is on the, the program. First time I've had him on the program proper where he gets to talk to me. Evan, as the ARZ superfan, welcome to Astro Radio Z. Uh, thank you for having me, Derek. Thank you for having me. So tonight I've brought these two people on. As you can read, you obviously can read. Hopefully you can read. If you can't, please go to school, get some tutors, do whatever you need to do. But uh, tonight's episode is about Slumber Party Massacre 1, 2, and 3. We're coming back after 10 years after making this documentary about these three slasher films to talk about them finally on the show. Jason, how do you feel? Can you believe it's been 10 years since we sat and dug deep and you talked to all the people and, and we set, made this movie for Scream Factory? It literally is bizarre to me that it would be a decade already. That just doesn't, you know, you always hear elderly, your grandparents say, oh, time gets moves faster as you get older. And seriously, I would, if you had told me that we shot this like six years ago, it's like, yeah, okay. But to say a decade, that just, it doesn't seem like time has gone that fast. And when I'm looking at the actors who we brought back together for that documentary, if you see them today, they they still haven't changed. They all look the same still for the most part. So right. no, it's crazy. <laughs> Funny, I don't know if I ever told you this. I might have. Maybe just you know, there's been ten years between us making this documentary and today. Um, at Cinema Wasteland, probably about five or six years ago, they had a reunion of sorts where I got to finally sit down and meet all of these people that I had only creepily seen on my computer screen, putting this movie together. People don't understand what it's like being a video editor. You sit, (laughs) you sit with footage of other people talking and you form this weird, uh, it's, I don't want to say like a creepy stalker vibe, but I mean, you're sitting there with people as they talk and tell their stories and putting them together. And after a while, you start to feel like, you know, these people like you were there until you're actually sit, standing there with them in the flesh. You go, oh, yeah, I know you. Oh, wait, you've never met me. <laughs> you don't know right. who I am. <laughs> <You're> like, crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually met all these people eventually. First time. True story, Jason. First time I sat when we were shooting safe inside at your house with Brink Stevens. And the first time I actually sat with Brink alone and we were just hanging out. I said, hey. It's really nice to finally meet you <laughs> as uh-huh. opposed to just seeing you on a screen. And I don't know if that creeped her out or not. <laughs> but she well, kind of giggled. I mean, I mean, as an actor, you would think that they, especially with those who go to conventions, that they have to hear it all day long at these conventions because, oh, yeah. you know, you do see, you, you form a relationship 
in this really odd sort of way with these actors. And so that when you do meet them in person for the first time, you're like, Hey, and they're like, right. no. yeah. who the <laughs> fuck you know? is this guy? <laughs> yeah. It's even more bizarre when you meet them and you've only ever watched them like in one movie and like they're 20 years older and you're like, what? you're not supposed to look like this. Right. <laughs> I was never one of those people. Evan, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I never was a convention goer. I literally didn't start going to conventions and meeting all these people until much later in my life. Evan, were you ever one of these people that went to the conventions and sat and met all these people that used to be in these movies? No, man. No, not at all. Um, every celebrity encounter I've ever had is uh, was in my brief time working in Australian TV, like I, I've never been a con dude. Um, and I'm a big comic book nerd and never did the comic book con thing either. Just it's not that it doesn't appeal to me. I've just kind of never got around and done it, you know? Sure. I, I suppose it's a matter of opportunity. That was my problem growing up. I never I, I originally am from Chicago. But then when I was around like 10, 11 years old, my family moved into the boondocks of Wisconsin. There was there was no opportunity for me as a child to sit and see these people at conventions. Jason, what is your story? It's a totally different thing. You are completely a convention dude, right? Like way back in the day, used to go all the time. The first convention that I went to, I remember, was a Fangoria convention in Chicago. And I was probably like 18 or 19 years old. and My uncle took me. And I got to meet Kane Hodder and I stood in line for, it was, this is at, so you're figuring this is when Friday seven or eight had come out like 89 probably. And I like, you know, you have all these questions in your head and you're like, you're going to ask him. And I got, up, it was my turn. And I looked at him and he's like, hi, what's your name? And I went, uh, 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 you know, so, um, oh, yeah. as a fan, it was like, I was always almost kind of too nervous to meet the people. Sure. I just wanted to like stare at them from afar and that was good enough for me. Well, that's what you've been um, doing your whole life, right? Watching them yeah. on TV. You didn't have the opportunity to sit and actually like converse with them. No, you know, and you didn't back then you didn't have the internet or Facebook or anything where you had any kind of real connection besides becoming like a pen pal. And so my only, my first experience of actually interacting with an actor would have been Brink Stevens. Because she appeared at a Fango convention in Chicago a couple years later, and I kind of did the same thing, and then she kind of was like, "Talk to me," because <laughs> 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 she no. truly is. If if those of you who don't know who Brink Stevens is, she's a, a, she's a convention original. She goes back to the very first Comic Con in 1972. She's a, she's a, an originator. I don't know if that's what you would call her, but she is well versed in how to um, interact with fans. Cool. And you're never going to meet a sweeter person. So she kind of brought me in and got me kind of going in the convention, just like realizing that they're just people. And I wasn't a big convention person overall as a fan. Like I would go when they would come to Chicago or Milwaukee, but that didn't happen too often. And it wasn't until I started kind of appearing on the other side of the table that I got to meet more of them when I would kind of walk out and kind of scoot around. And, and for the most part, I always kind of really enjoyed the celebrities. There was really only two 
people that I was like, like, you're not at all what I thought you were going to be like. <laughs> I have a few of those. I have a few names I could toss out there, but we'll leave that for another time. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but no, I, I, I like going to meet the people, but I, I will also say I never felt like I belonged as a fan. Like I, I'm, I'm not a part of the horror community in that way. Why do you think that? Like, I'm not somebody who wears a lot of black or heavy metal stuff, or I, I don't have the scary pictures on my shirts. I'm <laughs> super queer, you know? So I'm showing up in bright colors and, you know, even at my table, when I would sit there, people are almost kind of afraid to come up to me. It's the most bizarre thing. And I had J.R. Bookwalter watch one weekend when we were across from each other, I said, watch, because I have this table with all this crap, all my femme fatales, magazines, and my DVDs. And I said, I'm going to get up. Nobody's been coming over to me. They'll all kind of like look at me from afar and kind of walk feet away from my table, but try to look. But the moment I walk away, people will like flood my table, not to steal anything, but to look it over. So I did it on purpose multiple times and every single time. As soon as I walked away, people would come and look at my table. And the moment I came back, they'd all scatter. And Booker Walter was like, oh, my God, you're totally right. <laughs> so sure. I don't I don't know what it is. I just I maybe I just never found that particular click to go with. Sure. I yeah. scare people. <laughs> I, I can uh, vouch for the fact that you are the least scary person I've probably ever <laughs> met in my entire life, Jason. I mean, <laughs> The reason I guess I, I bring up this this fact and bring up conventions is that Slumber Party Massacre over the course of the last 15 to 20 years has become one of these almost mythical slasher films to where every person that was involved with them have become basically a convention legend. They've all been to the conventions. They've all talked to everybody. And these movies have become beloved when let's, let's be honest, the vast majority of slasher movies just aren't really celebrated in that way. You have your Friday the 13th, you have your nightmare on Elm streets and you have your Halloweens. Evan, can you think of another other than scream another slasher franchise that's as beloved as the Slumber Party Massacre films? As beloved? No, no. I mean, there's a lot of like second runner up stuff, you know, people are in the hatchet, you know, uh, there's a couple of series that are like B sides, but no, nothing that, that stacks up next to the big boys. Like you said. Yeah. Why do you think that is Jason? Here's the thing. It's funny that you mentioned the top three Friday Elm street and, um, Halloween because having worked in a video store for the majority of the nineties slumber party was easily, you would have named that series next in popularity. I think part of it has to do with of all the franchises that existed as a result of direct to video slumber party for the first two films, this slumber party two was a true sequel. You know, the majority of franchises are, standalone movies that slap the title on prom night take your prom night movies right so four of them that have nothing to do with each other the howling minus a slight tie-in with part two none of them really have anything to do with each other correct summer party two came out it has not the same actors but it has the same characters 
So it relates to its original story. Slumber Party 2, I think, was actually a bigger success in video than part one. Right. And that box cover. Hell yeah. (laughs) Guitar, you know. Fuck yeah. A video store that it wasn't in. No, man. No. You know, it's. I'm surprised Corman waited as long as he did to make part three because part two was so successful. Right. And I think that that the image of that rocker on that box cover with the girls, with the scantily clad girls, everybody knew it. Even if you didn't see the movie, you knew that art. Right. Yeah. And the movie itself, the, the first time I saw part two, I was like, what piece of shit is this? This is awful. (laughs) But it's one of those, like Friday 7 was the same thing where I was like, this movie sucks. I'm very disappointed, but it's now one of my favorites. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I'm that way with Friday 13th Part 5. I never liked that movie initially growing up because my brother Shane and I had the the VHS, the only one we could afford, the VHS of Part 4. And we watched Part 4 endlessly. Some reason as I get older, <laughs> the only one I want to watch anymore is part five. And I can totally yeah, see that for Slumber Party Massacre too. But uh this <laughs> this series in particular, there there's a hold on the horror audience um because I feel that it's very unique amongst uh genre or subgenre of very cookie cutter films. Even though you could you could sit and point at the Slumber Party Massacre movies as following a lot of genre tropes and traits, there is an energy and vibe to them that just was never duplicated or replicated in any other slasher film. Evan, what is it about these movies that uh, kind of made you want to come on the episode tonight and talk about them? Oh, I mean, all right. So first, before we move on past the the cover that Jason was talking about, right? I think Slumber Party in general, Slumber Party Massacre, but especially fucking the VHS cover of Slumber Party 2 is the ultimate distillation of the 80s horror VHS cover. It's arguably the fucking best one ever put on a shelf, period. Like nobody sees that cover and has any... Uh, misconceptions about what this fucking movie is about or the vibe that you're going to get when you see it, you know, and yeah. if you're the kind of person who sees that cover and and is attracted, you're like big time attracted. You're not going to pass that shit by. When you see that sh- sitting on the shelf, you're like, yeah, that's what I'm watching tonight, you know? Right. And you guys are a little older than me, but um, as, as far back as I can remember almost going to the video store, that's one of the first covers I saw and that grabbed me as a kid. You know, and especially my older brother was a metalhead. So I was listening to Metallica and Metal Church and shit at the house. And to see that cover and to see the girls in the lingerie, you know, it was like a six, seven year old hetero boy. It just like that's fucking gold, man. Nothing is better than that. So I think it's possibly the purest horror cover that's ever been done as a poster or a VHS cover. You know, it's just like a diamond. Uh, but it, but further, you know, past that, um, it's just incredibly intelligent, man. It's so subversive. Uh, and I don't think it takes you don't have to be really clever or any kind of film snob to get it. I think uh, about 20 minutes into Slumber Party Massacre, if you're going to keep watching it, if you're the kind of person who's going to be into it you immediately start picking up on how clever it is and how every little thing that you expect is not what happens. 
You know what I mean? And everything is flipped on its head. And uh, that's why I love it. That's why I think it's the the best slasher film ever made. And, and but but as you go forward, it's still uh, things are still subverted. Like three falls back into some kind of standard slasher tropes, but it still goes further than things. I mean, can you think of a, a horror flick that more directly and horrifically addresses child molestation earlier than Slumber Party Massacre 3? I mean, there are movies that fucking hint at it and that place it in the background of sure, things. Sure. But, but Slumber Party 3 is hideous, dude. It's, it's really, really ugly. And to have a, a woman creator toss that at us I think yeah. that's like that's venomous. That's a mean fucking statement, you know, and that's well, I, what I, I like in horror. Yeah, it's. I think when we're, when we're sitting here talking about the power of the movies, it, there's something to be said for the fact that these all three films were made by women, written, produced. Yeah. Through, it's almost a middle finger at men. In uh-huh. a way, because they're like, <laughs> you know, if you think about the shower scene in part one with Michelle Michaels, with all the girls when they're in the in this high school locker room that shot up and down of Michelle Michaels and the other girls is so like, all right, you want it? Here it is, perverts. Just look at her. Let's get yeah. this over with and move on with it. Very clinical. Um, you know, with and right. the third film with Maria Ford in particular, that rape sequence, you're right. It's, it's one of the ugliest rape scenes in a movie. And you would never expect that. I mean, just look at the covers. If we're talking about, you know, the power of these covers, which uh, arguably the vast majority of us in the 80s, we rented movies based on the covers alone, based on, oh, my God, what is inside of this movie? When I look at this cover where (laughs) you have a dude spread eagled with a huge drill bit between his legs and all of the scantily (laughs) clad women between his legs looking up at it. What the fuck is this movie, right? Uh, So it's like there's a a male mastermind behind these female-directed and written uh, movies. So there's just like this weird alchemy to these movies that was never duplicated in any other slasher film. Now, Jason, what was your first exposure to these movies? I kept reading about Brink Stevens and Fangoria, but they never had a a picture of her. So she was kind of at the, so I, this is around like 88, 89, when she was kind of at the height of her or coming into the height of her popularity. And so somehow I found out that she, I had read somewhere that she was in Slumber Party Massacre. And that was the reason I rented the movie was just to kind of see who she was. I was trying to figure out, I'm like, who is Brink Stevens? Why do they keep mentioning her? Now they're not printing any damn pictures of her. So <laughs> Um, so that really, so I kind of sought out the original film and it was literally right before part two came out. So this must've actually been in 80, like 87, 88, mm-hmm. somewhere there. Um, so that, so that was my initial reason to watch the first film. Mm-hmm. And, um, was again, wasn't initially like madly in love with the movie. It just kind of like, I'm somebody who rewatches movies over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah. So it kind of became one of my favorites over time. Yeah. And I kept seeing the boss cover and it was, it was that drill bit coming down on the boss cover of the first film that I was like, this is going to be kind of sleazy. <laughs> right. There's something very overtly sexual about this. 
And uh, that that title, the font with the massacre and everything, it is definitely a, a box cover that when if you're a horror fan, you're going to look at and go, fuck, I need to see this movie. A little bit of trivia about that, about the poster for the first film. Number one, the drill bit was originally shot coming down directly from his groin. Uh, uh Uh-huh. Theaters and um, uh, distributors made them change it so that it was coming at a slant rather than straight down from his dick. Right. (laughs) And I don't, I don't, I think the legs of the killer is Jim Wynorski. Really? Yeah. (laughs) I guarantee for sure. I know he directed the photo shoot. I'm pretty sure that he was also the legs. Hmm. Very interesting. Yes. And the actress, Andre Honore, she plays Jackie in the film. Yes. The only actor is the only actor who's in the movie. Yes. And it was only because she heard through a friend that they were going to be doing the poster so she called up the company and said, hey, can I be on the poster? I'm actually in the movie. <laughs> so they said, sure, come on in. Because you notice that otherwise none of the girls from the first film are on the, are on the original cover. Right? Well, it's the same so, thing with the second movie. The only yeah. girl from the movie is Juliet Cummings that's on the cover. No, right. Heidi Kozak is in it, too. Oh, that's right. Heidi Kozak. Is, so it's those uh, two yeah. and then a model that's on it, correct? Yes. Yep. Nice. Yes, because <laughs> Christopher Bernard refused to pose for it. <laughs> Having gone through these little history lessons, and uh, I, I could, when we start talking finally after after a break, when we come back and we start talking about uh, the movies individually, I, I'll tell you my little story with Slumber Party Massacre One and how the first time I saw it, which is <laughs> is seared into my brain. There's just those moments when you're kids when you you see movies that you're not supposed to be seeing that just are firmly imprinted for the rest of your life. And slumber party massacre is definitely one of those movies. Having said all this preamble, Jason, what is it that ultimately from being a movie fan and uh, making movies of your own right, that led you to making this documentary? Like how did you go about presenting like, Hey, I'm a huge fan of these movies. I want to make this documentary. Will you allow me the opportunity? That's not at all how it happened. They came to me. Oh, interesting. How did that happen? So very first magazine article I ever published professionally was uh, a Slumber Party Massacre retrospective for Femme Fatales. And it got the cover story and it became one of their best-selling titles, uh, issues, we'll say. Um, and then I just, as I became involved with Femme Fatales, I just promoted the fuck out. I can swear on this, right? Oh, um, yes. You'd say whatever <laughs> the fuck you want. All right. I just promoted the heck out of it through the ensuing years at, at uh, Femme Fatales and things online. And then people started coming to me because I sort of became the ringleader of the Slumber Party fans in that time. So this is like late 90s, early 2000s. And so when Shout Factory uh, licensed all of Corman's movies and they were going to put Slumber Party out as a part of the package... They went to Google Slumber Party Massacre, and according to Cliff McMillan, everything that they kept finding on Google had my name attached to it. And Cliff had known of me because of October Moon, uh-huh. uh, because a company, a distribution company that he was working for, what put out October Moon into the into the stores. So he just kind of put. He's like, "Oh, Jason Collum, I know him from October Moon. 
he's a filmmaker. You know, he keeps getting tied to these slumber party documents on Google. I, he seems to be the good choice to do this. So then they contacted me through an email, asked if I'd do it. I crapped my pants and <laughs> said, uh, sure. <laughs> so I had, and I had already been seeking all of the actors out. So I also had, I, maybe, maybe he knew that I had access to all of these people already. Mm-hmm. So um, I just maybe seemed like the ideal candidate to do it for that reason. Sure. And this, it had nothing to do with the fact you had already made a documentary at this point, something to scream about. It, I mean, it could have been. I don't know. I don't know that for sure. They, his clip, the company that Cliff had been at, I think it was called Ventura Distribution or something. It's like my distributor, Tempe, went through another distributor, oddly, to get it into the stores. Hmm. Kind of like Ingram. Sure. Ingram and whatnot. So Cliff had uh, something to scream about as a part of his catalog as well. So that was two movies for me. So I think he knew that I was a filmmaker and that I had, because I had these direct ties to the actors from the films, maybe he just, that was kind of a, a trigger for him to say, hey, let's get this guy to do it. Listeners, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, us three gentlemen are going to break down each of the Slumber Party Massacre movies, which in and of themselves, even though we had said before, there are ties between at least the first two. They all can be treated as standalone movies. Almost. They're very different in tone compared mm-hmm. to each other. So we have a lot to talk about in Jason. You can illuminate the listeners to a lot of the behind the scenes stuff that went oh, on with, uh, the, with these films. And if you have anything to add, please do so. So uh, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about perhaps one of the all time greatest slasher films slash horror films of all time, the slumber party massacre. So we'll be right back. This is Astro Radio Z and we love talking about movies with you. If you are looking for more episodes and want to become part of the show, go to patreon.com forward slash Astro Radio Z and become a monthly subscriber to have access to not only over 100 plus bonus episodes of content, but a monthly bonus episode of Astro Radio Z Uncensored with Mark the Movie Man where you, the listener tell us what to cover on the show. Jump in. Make Astro Radio Z yours and become a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Astro Radio Z. The basketball team is planning a party. A slumber party. The party begins at 8 o'clock. Love it, too. You think I'm getting better? But be on the lookout for an uninvited guest. Please, please. When the pizza arrives, things really start jumping. Some people may have to leave early. But others will hang around and hang around. Courtney, you're underage. Negative. Let's go. 
Eat the dead guy's pizza. I feel better already. Really, I do. But for those who stay, there'll be plenty of surprises. <laughs> and non-stop action. Slumber Party Massacre. Close your eyes for a second and sleep forever. So the first time I ever came across the movie Slumber Party Massacre was when I was perhaps 12 years old. I had a friend named Travis who lived in a trailer park outside of town. And it was one of the rare occasions because my family lived about five miles outside of the town that we lived in, which was this little eye blinker thing where in the middle of cow hump wisconsin and uh for some i must i i I don't remember this correctly it might have been i had like an after school function and i had to wait for my dad to pick me up so i went over to my friend travis's house and he's like dude check out this movie i got and we go into his room and it was starting to become that time where it was slightly dusk and he pops in this vhs And all I see is this dude wearing nothing but denim, carrying this immensely huge power drill and chasing after Brink Stevens. Now, at the time, I didn't know that was Brink Stevens. I was just like, where the fuck is this going? What? What? I don't know if I should be watching this. Now, I at that point, I hadn't really watched a lot of super gory movies. I think this may have been my first exposure to a slasher film because this movie, you know, I only got to watch like maybe 45 minutes or so of it. And in that time I saw a dude drill multiple people. I saw numerous (laughs) naked ladies and uh, it was just a a creepy slimy experience that has stayed with me my entire life. Jason, what was your first experience with this movie like? Do you remember how this affected you when you first watched it? I think I kind of hinted at it a little earlier. I I rented it purposefully and watched it by myself and was excited to watch it because I knew that Brink Stevens was in it and I was trying to figure out who she was. Um, And I do remember the first, the opening scene where Michelle Michaels like wakes up and very slowly undresses <laughs> um, from one slip to another slip. <laughs> you know? um, and it was like this full frontal nudity thing. And I was beyond a tween. I was in my teen years. I must've probably been like 15 or 16. So I'd seen a number of slasher movies already, but this one felt kind of different. Sure. And I remember thinking, there were a lot of really super creepy parts to it, but it was playing differently to me than like the Friday the 13th were. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. I wasn't immediately in love with it, but there were parts of it that were grabbing me. So then kind of, as I watched it more and more, because I am a repeater, I watched every Friday the 13th movie easily 30 times. So the more I watched it, the more I fell in love with it. There seemed a more overt sexuality to it because of the nudity in the shower scene, in the opening scene with Michelle Michaels, 
in the scene where they're all changing the clothes at the house, it seemed kind of cookie cutter to me at points. I was like, oh, okay, the girls show up, they take out their clothes, the boys show up to scare them, you know. But then I was like, oh, okay, there's this is kind of meant to be kind of funny. Like I was picking up that it was winking at the audience. It's yeah. not a full-on parody or a comedy, but I could tell that they were doing things where they were, again, kind of either flipping off the male audiences, like here's your nudity, or they just had a couple of like one-liners. Sure. You know, the whole thing with putting Deborah DeLisa in the fridge where the body slowly falls out and then it slowly <laughs> goes back in. And then uh, and um, when the lead girl, uh, Robin Stilly Valerie, was making like she made red Kool-Aid and uh, it was just kind of like stuff like that. I'm like, okay, well, whoever made this movie meant to do a lot of this. You sure. know, so I know right. power to it. Yeah, the, there's definitely uh, a playfulness to this movie that when you see that cover, as we described before, it comes across as a straight up sleaze exploitation picture. And when when I was young and didn't know the nuances and didn't see it, I all I thought this was like a really slimy, dark, scary movie. Uh, what this movie is, folks, Slumber Party Massacre, made in 1982 by Amy Holden Jones. Each of these films are unique for the fact that these were female written, female directed movies for Roger Corman back in the day for uh, New Horizon. Correct. Was that the New Horizon Pictures? New World. New, New World. World. New World. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Corman was New World back in the early 80s. So it was the biggest o- theatrical opening New World had done. It was the biggest premiere New World had ever done in a theater. Mm-hmm. So you, you had the, this movie directed by Amy Holden Jones, written by feminist writer Rita Mae Brown, and this movie called The Slumber Party Massacre. You couldn't think of a more lurid title to slap on Perfect. something outside of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's yeah. essentially about a bunch of high school girls that are being stalked and killed systematically by an escaped <clears throat> convict named Russ Thorne, who is modus operandi of killing is by walking around with a huge phallic looking drill <laughs> that he caresses and tells the women you know you want this you're so lovely i love you you and want it you know you want it you know you want it uh, so that's all there is to this movie there's not like a huge plot to this it's it's your basic stock and slash bunch of girls have a slumber party and there's a killer that happens upon them like halloween and they have to just try and survive the night whether they do or they don't you got to find out uh evan first time you saw this movie what did you think I, I was too young for it, I think, probably like Jason. Um, I, it didn't grab me at all. I was probably 15, 16, somewhere around in there when I saw it. And too much sunlight. The killer didn't, at the time, didn't strike me as anything special. I was like a guy in double denim, no mask. <laughs> He's just a guy. You know, it, it didn't didn't hit me right at all when I was a kid. And I don't even remember if I finished watching it. But then uh, roughly 10 years ago, sometime in, in my mid-20s, I made an attempt to buckle down and try and smash through a lot of the classics, uh, 70s and 80s stuff that I hadn't got around to 
and I watched it and I got it all. Like it hit me, you know, every little bit of it hit me and I was instantly hooked. It's been my favorite slasher film ever since then. And I look back on being younger and not getting it. And I'm disappointed in myself because, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's so, so special to me now that I, I look back on that and I'm like, I don't even know who that guy was who couldn't understand this movie, but it's just so fucking good. It's like, you know, the title, like you were saying, it's the ultimate distillation of slasher film. And it, it is a perfect timing too, right? Like this, if Slumber Party Massacre was first, if it had been before Halloween and Friday and Nightmare, it wouldn't be what it is. Right. It like it had to hit when it hit, you know, and it's just ah, perfection, perfection. Yeah, there's definitely a hint and a nod towards these other films that were right. far more male gazy than Slumber right. Party Massacre ultimately becomes toward the end of the film, the beginning of the movie. And Jason, I'd love to hear your perspective on this. The beginning of the movie is very male gazy. It's very centered on women as objects for our killer to so, you know, seek after along with the boys, they all oogle over these women who get disrobed rather quickly. The camera lingers on them rather quickly, in which we find out in the documentary uh, that Amy Holden Jones did that because there's a certain formula that Roger Corman likes. He wants right. he wants right off the bat. He wants to smack you with tits in the face and he wants to get some killing right off the bat. Those that's what's going to hook. You got to hook those people in the first 15 minutes. You don't hook those people in the first 15 minutes. They're gone. They don't want to sit right. and watch your movie. So they get that out of the way. Slowly, though, as the movie goes along, you start to find out that this killer who is uh, Evan, as you had said, is kind of like the perfect distillation of all these slasher tropes is essentially a walking hard on in the most yes. metaphorical sense is a is basically like the slimiest guy you can think of walking around caressing his cock fawning over women that ultimately band together and kill him in a very glorious fashion. And the (laughs) women ultimately become far more powerful than he could ever be. Jason, what did you think when this started pulling itself together in the movie, the metaphor that they were parroting? Because essentially that's what I feel the underlying metaphor of this movie is, is that no matter what a walking hard on is going to do, Women that stick together are going to be fall victim to this <laughs> to this mentality. What did what did you think of this? Well, I mean, I think you, you you totally hit the nail on the head. I mean, Amy Jones even said when she wrote it that her underlying theme to everything was, "Oh no, he's got this big thing and he's coming at me with it. What's it going to do to me?" You know. Um, so it was a fear of sex and the male agenda, basically. The the movie, two things about it, Rita Mae Brown, who was this big feminist uh, author, she had written this, the original script, but it was really Amy Jones almost rewrote 80% of it and gave it more of the comedic spin. It was intended to be exactly what you had pointed out. The other interesting thing about it is Slumber Party did not have the love that it does today. Like in the last like 15 years, I'm going to say, all of a sudden you're seeing at conventions guys dressed up like Russ Thorne with the drill and the red T-shirt and the, and the denim mm-hmm. jacket. And you are seeing the cast 
appearing at these conventions. You're seeing the movie play again on TV or at like second run theaters where they do like the B movie nights or whatever. It was hard for me to find other fans back in the 90s when I was starting to kind of like try to hunt people down and there were no slumber party fan groups or, you know, any of that. And now it's, I don't know if it's become as popular as it is right now because of flashback idea, sure. you know, our childhood yeah. or, right. or if it's the me too movement, because it really does play to, yes, you've got all the nudity in the movie and the oogling of the women. But as you said, as you get towards the middle, towards the end of the movie, the women really start to overpower and totally emasculate him in the finale. They cut off his dick. So it's, I, I think it plays more to nostalgia. That's the word I'm looking for. It plays to nostalgia, but it also fits into this Me Too concept in a weird, in a really weird sort of way nowadays. So like Evan, like you said, you're, you're significantly younger. I'm 40. I'm about to be 47. So I just remember back then, a lot of people were in like in the 80s were like, oh, God, I saw Slumber Party Massacre. What a piece of crap. You know, it's that all these people have been coming out and saying like, oh, my God, that's one of my favorite slashers. Like, where were you people? (laughs) You were (laughs) 35 years ago. So, yeah, (laughs) it's it's definitely interesting because I, I, you know, slasher fans in a very superficial way are often labeled as mouth breathers. They're often labeled as people that aren't looking for entertainment that speaks beneath the surface level. And if you superficially watch Slumber Party Massacre, you can get those same vicarious thrills. You could sit and watch it. And it essentially is just a a hack and slash cut them by, you know, cat and mouse by the numbers kind of film. But if you have any sort of gray matter between your ears, you'll see that there's a hell of a lot going on, more going on in this movie than basically almost any other slasher film that was ever made. Now, you could, you know, you can argue that Halloween is is a better movie. Of course, artistically, it is head and shoulders above almost any other slasher film that was ever made. But when you look at uh, stuff that could be labeled as parodies, there's really not much that that assimilates itself into the genre and subverts it more than Slumber Party Massacre in my mind. And one of the things that I found that was really interesting when Jason, when you brought me on to work with you on this documentary and um, subsequently through becoming friends and us being around each other a lot is that these movies have a tremendously huge gay male fan base. What is it about Mm -hmm. these movies that bring the gay male fan base in? I think number one, and I'm speaking for myself, but I, I, and I, I'm guessing when I watch a slasher movie, I almost always identify with the heroine. I'm not, I, I'm not ident- identifying with the stupid boyfriends who are trying to get them naked and have sex with them. And I'm not identifying with the girl that's, you know, the, the ditzy bimbo or the sexy one. I'm always almost immediately drawn to the final girl. And she's beaten and battered and bruised, but she comes out as a survivor. So in some, if you want to get really like philosophical and maybe it's a stretch, but it kind of speaks to the gay person who is kind of going through life, beaten, battered and broken down, you know, 
um, but comes out on top. There's like a certain power survival element to it. And when I say beaten and broken down, I don't mean people are beating me up. I mean emotionally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other factor is, particularly with part two, is they're so over the top. And gay men, I don't know if you've noticed, <laughs> <laughs> tend to like things that are very exaggerated. <laughs> so um, when you watch part two in particular, that the guitar, the clothes, the it's it's bright colors. I mean, everything. The majority of Slumber Party Two is shot in daylight. You know, mm-hmm. girls came out. The movie itself came out at a time when girls were wearing lots of bright pinks and blues and purples and yellows, and it was just uh, 1987. And I, and not just this movie, but I have said, if you want to see what 1987 looked like, watch Slumber Party Massacre Two. If you want to see how. <laughs> in 1987 watch slumber party massacre 2 it speaks to the culture of that particular year so whoever was in charge of wardrobe kind of hit it right on the head <laughs> it's a fun movie to watch and it's it, to look at you know there's just a lot of color to it the girls are super cute i mean when you look at crystal bernard and you look at heidi kozak in particular as a gay guy i'm like Heidi Kozak is what I want to look like. If I was going to dress up as a girl, sure. that's what I want to look like. <laughs> right. So pretty, you know? Yeah. Um, and the girls themselves are so, and this is what's missing, I think, from horror today. The girls are so fun. Like, they're yeah. not bitchy. You don't want any of them to die. Like, right. they're all fun people. So when, which is the best thing about a, a good horror movie, I think. This is, Again, my own personal opinion. When I watch a slasher movie, I don't want to see people die because they deserve it. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it's the suspense of I don't want the person to die, which I think is majorly missing from movies today. Nowadays, it's like, oh, my God, how soon are you going to kill this idiot off? Well, I think that's a huge thing about especially part one. One a thing that draws me to it is that it's one of the rare slasher movies where each and every character has personality and they're given the space to have personality. They're not just cardboard cutouts other than the boys. The boys in this movie obviously are just one dimensional and intentionally shown as such. But each and every one of those girls and Evan, I'd love to hear your opinion on this. Each and every one of those girls is a fully rounded a character that I ultimately want to see rise up and take care of Russ Thorne at this movie, right? Right. Yeah, for sure, man. And and nobody's brought in uh, like Jason's talking about the modern feel that you get on slasher films where I don't know if it's laziness on the part of the writers or not, but people are characters are brought in to be the one you want to see get toasted. And it's uh, I don't know. It also ties in with how modern slashers want you to identify and root for the killer instead of the characters. It's all kind of weird nowadays. But um, that Slumber Party one, like you said, everybody in it, nobody's there to be the disposable bitch. You know, nobody's so annoying. You're egging them on to die. Each and every one of them are interesting and people. They're not just brought in to be a corpse. And our killer is the opposite of that. Can you honestly, Evan, think of another slasher killer that's as skeezy <laughs> as Russ Thorne is? No, no, not at all. Not at all. 
at the same time that he's ultimately disgusting, he's also kind of a non-person. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think of Russ Thorne when I think about Slumber Party. That's true. What do you think about? I, you think about the girls, you know? Yeah. I think of, I think about the girls, and I think about a uh, handsome next-door neighbor, the blondie guy, who I also hate that he gets the drill, you know? Like, he's a fucking nice guy, too. Like, but he's a fucking weirdo, right? I don't know. <laughs> Is he? In real life, he might be. I've seen the. I've seen some of the. Uh, <laughs> nowadays, but no, in the movie, I think he's just a next door neighbor who's kind of like thrown in as a red herring. Sure, right, but I, it's also kind of a subversive red herring because he's not immediately creepy or suspicious. You know what I mean? Yeah. When he he's or to me anyway, he just comes off as a nice guy. Um, whereas in a Friday movie the red herring is going to be really fucking over the top, weird and creepy, you know, and roughly the same size as Jason or whatever. Like, um, it, it's just, uh, it's smarter. I think I agree with you completely. I've never really thought of it that way, but Russ Thorne, even though we see his face from frame one, we see this dude in the rear view mirror as he's leering at these girls going into the high school. And we know who he is. There's no hiding behind a mask. There's no creeping around. The, the, the dude is right there. He's wall to wall denim. There's nothing but blue on this guy. <laughs> Yet he's nobody. He could literally yeah. be anybody. So it doesn't it doesn't really matter that, you know, which was, you know, the trope of the era is that everyone had to have this persona. All the killers had masks right. and they had very specific look. <laughs> and like you said, we had to root for them. He because he's written the way he is, he is ultimately nothing more than the personification of a hard dick. And right. the way that Michael yeah. Villella plays him amps that up to such a T that every time he's on screen, you're either really skeezed out or you're kind of laughing because it's kind of ridiculous. Right, Jay? <laughs> yeah. I mean, his, in one sense, he's over the top because he only ever speaks at the end when he has Michelle Michaels, who plays Trish, when he has her cornered in the living room and he's leering over her and he's like, you know, you want it. You love it. That's his only dialogue. That's the first time you hear him speak in like 60 minutes. And it's some of the creepiest dialogue, too. That stuff is just bone chilling. So, you know, and he so he really has he's almost forced to act with his face and body. And when you watch the documentary, he's he turned himself deliberately. He turned himself into an animal. Now, he chose Peacock because. Of the way, because he knew of the the neck movements is kind of what he was referring to. And when you watch him, knowing that that's the animal he was going for, you're like, sure, shit, yep, he's a peacock. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but but he said in his mind, he's like, he's an animal looking for dinner. Yep. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's it's a predator hunting its prey. Yeah. So really, again, on a, on the surface, you're like, oh my god, this is so cheesy. But really, I mean, he put a lot of thought into what he was doing. And it comes off, like you say, skeezy, and you don't know anything about him other than he's looking for a kill. <clears throat> Jason, do you happen to know anything about the making of the the shot where after he gets Brink Stevens in the school and then there's a shot of Russ Thorne running from the school back out to the uh, repair woman's van or whatever? Mm-hmm. Do, do you know anything about that shot? Like if if 
surely that shot was Amy Jones's idea, right? That was part of the script and uh, maybe even storyboarded out. You mean just where he would see him at the high at the high school and he's running just from the building to the van? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so far as I know, yeah, she, I don't know if she storyboarded it out or anything. Okay, uh, but there's you got no reason to believe that was his idea or anything like that? Oh, no, it was never. No, nobody ever really discussed that particular shot. Okay. Now, see, to me, like, that's one of the most important and uh, intelligent shots in the movie. It, it, it hits me every time I see it, and I've seen Slumber Party like a hundred times. But have you ever seen another slasher? like the killer themselves fucking running away from the scene of a crime, like a dork. <laughs> <laughs> never, man. You just, you've never seen that ever. And that image, he's never glamorized. Nope. You know what I mean? Like he's just made to look like such a piece of shit. The whole movie. <laughs> yes. There's nothing cool about him. So you don't, come out of it being like a Russ Thorne fan, you know, like people are Freddie fans and Jason fans and shit. There ain't no Russ Thorne fans, you know what I mean? Unless unless you're a sexual predator, maybe. Right, maybe yeah, Russ Thorne yeah. is, your, is your ultimate idol. But. Right, yeah, yeah. You're also the kind of guy who had like the Patrick Bateman poster in their dorm room or whatever. Um, but... But yeah, you just don't get that. And the the movie, uh, you know, and they kill off the killer at the end of every movie. So that's part of it, too. So as a franchise, it doesn't bank on Russ Thorne. But even just as as a singular movie, it doesn't really bank on him. You know, it's it's about the girls. Absolutely. Now, funny enough, we're only talking about Slumber Party Massacre one through three tonight. But Jim Wynorski ultimately made uh, unofficial part four called cheerleader massacre where brink stevens character that we see well we don't necessarily on screen see her die but it's highly (laughs) implied highly implied by her screen that she has died now cheerleader massacre happens many years later shot on a you know digital video kind of flick where these people find Brink Stevens, who is the same character from Slumber Party Massacre, living no in the way. middle of the woods, and she recants her story about escaping from Russ Thorne in the first movie. No way. <laughs> now, are you bringing this up because of me? No, I'm or not bringing not- this up because of you, Jason, but would you like to talk about this? I would love to. So that was my idea. I had written Slumber Party 4. I had written a script for it had tried for years and years and years to get it made with Corman. And the answer was that, um, and Julie Strain told me this, because I was going to have Julie Strain be the killer. I was going to flip it and make it be a, a woman. Oh, fuck. Oh, I oh, wish man. that movie would have been made, especially oh, now that, especially now that, unfortunately, she's not doing well health-wise. I mean, our hearts pour out to Julie. This is, It's awful been watching, you know, what's been going on with her as, you know, her health's been declining. But can you imagine fucking Julie Strain is a slumber party yeah. massacre killer? Hell yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, so I, I met with Julie Strain, and I explain, you know, that I wanted her to do the, do the movie and, and could she, and I knew she had ties to Corman and Wynorski and all, all the people that were working at the company. And they said, they finally said no, because they said, why would we hire a guy from the outside to do this sequel when we would, why wouldn't we just do this in house? 
which crushed my heart, but they totally took my idea. I, I had written in my script that Brink had survived, barely had survived the uh, the massacre at the end of part one. And this is now years later and the movie kind of revolves around her character having survived. And now her daughter is one of the teens that is being stalked and it's a revenge plot. So they filmed it at Slumber Party 4 and then realized it had nothing to do with a fucking slumber party. Yep. And so they changed the title, but that is just that part, just the fact of, of Brink's character living um, and being out in the woods. That is 100% my idea. Now <laughs> was Brink aware of that? Yes. She was hundred percent aware of it. She almost, she came to me very sheepishly when they, when they you know called her to do the, to do the role. And she's like, um, I just want you to know that they've totally stolen your idea. So, I mean, at least I knew that they wrote that they read my script. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. That's the worst kind of flattery possible. (laughs) I was like, could you at least have given me like a credit or something? (laughs) I would have been happy with just a credit in the end, in the end role. But ultimately, cheerleader camp or cheerleader massacre is a piece of shit. It's oh an awful yeah, movie. that's what I would say, Jason. Is that you could take solace in the fact that the movie's a total pile of fucking garbage. <laughs> yeah, and it has, and to anybody out there listening who's going to go now and watch it and think that they're watching a renamed Slumber Party Massacre Four, it literally has not other than the fact that Brink is in it and is that same character. There's no slumber party. The girls never put on nightgowns. <laughs> Like it's a group of cheerleaders who don't really even cheer. Nope. <laughs> and their, their bus gets stranded and they have to go to an old house or a house. It's to, like, so dumb. It's, yeah. It's a dumb movie. Oh, so don't go and watch Cheerleader Massacre thinking that you're going to see some replica of Slumber Party. Okay. Nope. So, nope. It's just like it's a Jim Wynorski movie. It's got the same stupid mm-hmm. tendencies of all Jim Wynorski movies <laughs> post-1995, which means yeah. you're watching horseshit. So anyways, <laughs> I wanted to bring that up. Let's let's go ahead. Let's start to wrap this one up. Uh, I honestly, uh, the as this movie ages, it's like fine wine. This movie, for me, and I do not, I, Jason, you are aware of this because we've talked about this in the past a lot. Evan, I don't know if you're so aware of this, maybe because you've listened to every episode of my podcast, you know me better than <laughs> I know myself. Um, I'm not a huge slasher movie fan. This right. is, other than Nightmare on Elm Street, this is basically the first time on the podcast we've really sat and talked about a bunch of slasher movies. Um, it's just never been my thing, but Slumber Party Massacre, hands down, has got to be my favorite slasher movie almost of all time. It it just works. It is fun. All the characters are great. The the killer is slimy and stupid and memorable. And it breezes. Okay, the, the main thing that I love about this movie, it's short. It flies yeah. by <laughs> so fast. It, There's it quick. The first drags. two in particular, both parts one and two, they, they, for some reason, I mean, part one is only 77 minutes. Um, and part two is not much longer. I think part two clocks in at like 81 minutes. Actually, um, I think it's, I think it's only an hour and 17, hour and 15, hour and 17 minutes. Yeah. It, um, but they do, when you watch them, they're really, there's no dull parts. They, they nah. <laughs> fly by. Yeah. So for me, that's like the ultimate concoction of 
of a perfect horror movie for me. So for I, this is like one of my highest recommendations ever is not just because we sat and worked on the documentary and we're, we're be, this is just genuinely one of the best horror films that's ever been made. And uh, I would recommend this to anybody. Evan, your final thoughts on the slumber party massacre. I can't say much that you didn't man, except for like, I, I like to compare slumber party massacre to, the popularity of bands like Tool and Radiohead. So Tool and Radiohead got no fucking business being one of the most couple of the most popular highest selling bands on planet Earth. They they should not be that popular, you know, but they just are. Something about them works for your average knucklehead who doesn't quite get it and so, and it works for people with a fucking brain too, you know. And Slumber Party is the same thing. You can watch it and it's like if you're a knucklehead who just showed up for tits and blood, it's it fucking delivers fully, you know what I mean? Like better than any other movie. And, and then if you have a brain, you pick up on the fact that it's the smartest slasher film you've ever seen. So to me it's just like it's right there in the sweet spot of it works for anybody who watches it. It should anyway. Um, and that is why I agree, man. Finest slasher film ever made. Wow. Awesome. Jason, final thoughts on this thing. Um, well, first thing I, I should point out that one of the actors died this morning. Um, really? Joseph Allen, Fuck. Yeah, yeah. Joseph Allen Johnson, who played one of the, one of the two boys, <laughs> the short blonde one, mm-hmm. he played, I believe Neil. Um, oh, shit, man. Yeah, they. Uh, I guess they found him on the on his couch this morning. Oh no! Um, they still haven't figured out what happened, but um, so you know, thoughts mm. to him. And then I was uh, going back and forth with Deborah Deliso, because who played Kim in the movie, she um, has she remained very close with him, so she's not in the in the in the best of ways today either. She's says she's very heartbroken and understandably so. Um, I can kind of when you these actors and I think I can, maybe it was before we were recording I can't remember when you see actors in a movie so much for so many years you forget that they age yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. it becomes so endeared to you that it's you almost forget that time has moved on for them you know um, I do my final thoughts on the movie is um, I I do think the lasting power of it is. It's nostalgia, the nostalgia factor, um, and it, it, it does have something different. It has these girls that you enjoy. It, it moves at a quick pace. It's not the most well-made slasher movie, but it has some really beautiful moments. My personal favorite moment is when the, they're all in the living room at the end of the movie, and the gym teacher is kind of whacking him on the back with a poker, and Michelle Michaels in slow motion comes running into the room and just shoves the knife into his back. Right. Yeah. It's just, it's just the, the I think it's a very powerful scene um, with, with the visual of it, the sound of the stabbing, her reaction to what she's done. Mm-hmm. This isn't like, Hey, I just, you know, in most movies, when you sl- slash the slasher, it's like a, yay, I got him. And that's yeah. not her. reaction. I don't think it's one of the best made slasher movies. But I think it has moments to it that are very powerful. And I think there are moments to it that are very fun. And I wish that slasher movies today would study it to see how it's done when you're trying to create characters that your audience is going to care about. Very well done. Now, we're going to take a short break, folks. And I'm going to quick play a little bit of perhaps one of my favorite favorite 
horror movie soundtracks of all time is the Slumber Party Massacre. Um, a lot of people point towards Halloween with the synth wave that, uh, you know, John Carpenter kind of created. Uh, but Slumber Party Massacre, not only is it just the movie that's great, it's got this insanely creepy soundtrack to it. And uh, we're going to we're going to break away from talking about this one. And we're going to I'm going to play a little bit of the soundtrack. And when we come back, we're going to take a complete 180 degree turn and talk <laughs> about the insanely surreal rockabilly nightmare that is Slumber Party Massacre, too. So stick around. Listening to Astro Radio Z.
Musk has got some weird friends. I have got the fastest growing bit I've ever had in my entire life. I mean, look at this thing. <laughs> I think your sweetheart's been taking too many diet pills. Here's a chicken sandwich if you want to She should have listened to her sister. Don't pick me because when she and her band get ready to party Do anything you want to good It's more than just a great time. I didn't know girls really did this stuff. It's Slumber Party Massacre 2. Now it's time for the fun part. He's in his house somewhere. It's nine o'clock, I'm ready to rock. My motorcycle's out of the house. Slumber Party Massacre 2. If you go, don't go all the way. Oh God, anybody got any tranks? So in 1987, Roger Corman decided to come back to the Slumber Party Massacre well and make Slumber Party Massacre 2. Now, this time, you know, there's no Russ Thorne. Only one of the characters has come back, but the tone couldn't be any more different than the first film. Now, Deborah Brock directed this film. So again, we have a a female director of this. And the plot basically centers around Courtney Bates, who survived. She was the, the, the sister of one of the actors in the first movie and survived the events and now is having psychological trauma due to the events of the first film. And the movie centers around her and her friends that are in a band. uh, And the band in real life is a band called Wednesday Week. They hang out, have good times, and decide that they're going to get away with their their boyfriends for a weekend of fun. But little did they know, there is some strange rockabilly killer with a (laughs) guitar drill bit going around killing everybody one by one yet again. Or is there? Or is there, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So in a weird way, this film, again, is a by-the-numbers slasher circumvented into a weird David Lynch MTV surreal mess that is unlike just about any slasher movie that's ever been made. It's almost a musical. Right. Yeah. Jason, first time you saw this thing, I know we talked about it a little bit when we were talking about Slumber Party Massacre 1. First time I saw this, I had no idea what to make of this movie. This movie is literally a slap in the face of every horror fan (laughs) who could ever possibly possibly watch it because it totally does not care about being a horror film at all. It kind of laughs at horror films. What did you think of this first time you saw it? Oh, the first time I thought it, I saw, thought it was saw it. I thought it was a piece of crap. I was like, "What is this nightmare?" <laughs> the story does continue from the first film, but visually, narratively, it has nothing to do with the original film because it's really trying to be a Nightmare on Elm Street is what it's trying to be. Yes, 
So, right, right. which at the time, if you were a horror fan and uh, alive in 19, from like 1986 to about 1991, I would say 50% of the horror movies coming out had dream sequences in them because right. of A Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. Sometimes they were blatant ripoffs of Elm Street. Sometimes it was just like one or two dream sequences. But they, it like kind of became the standard in a, mo- in a horror movie to have some type of dream sequence. And this was one of the prime examples of, I mean, they even named the cops Kruger and Voorhees. Yep. So, <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. again, it's a movie that grew on me. And I don't know why I go back and watch movies that I think suck the first time around. we're masochists that's why jason we're just cinemasochists you know why have i seen crazy fat ethel part two like four times (laughs) um so but with each new viewing i just i started to really love it and now it's one of my favorite movies and the interesting thing you were talking about how it's, it's a slap in the face to horror fans deborah brock when she made it was given literally no instructions. Corman said, um, Slumber Party 1 was one of our best-selling titles ever on VHS. We need to make a movie, or we need to make a sequel. Go for it. So she literally had no boundaries, is my understanding. Was not a horror fan. So she just kind of knew that Elm Street was like the in vogue thing, but it still kind of had to be a slasher movie. Uh, again, I think whoever was in charge of wardrobe and set design and whatnot was just kind of mimicking what was really popular um, at the time. So that's how you got the visual of everything being kind of cotton candy colored, you know. And the driller killer is supposed to be Russ Thorne. It's not stated in the movie that that's who it is, but it's. I do believe it says it on the back of the box. It says Russ Thorne has been re- has, was reincarnated as. So yeah, the driller killer is back. Interesting. So, yeah. So they just, they're, what they're basically doing is turning him into a Freddy Krueger character. And the reason that none of the actors came back was not because they didn't want to. None of them were asked because huh. Corman felt that they were too old. Yeah, that's right. right. These are still high school students. Right. And little trivia from the original film. So in the, in the original film, Robin Stilley is the older sister, Valerie. And Jennifer Myers is the is supposed to be the junior high age sister, um, Courtney. And in real life, Jennifer Myers was several years older than Robin Stilly. What the fuck? Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. And wow. in this movie, that character of Courtney is now played by Crystal Bernard, who uh, now I, I guess now most younger. Uh, listeners of Astro Radio Z probably have no frame of reference of who Crystal Bernard was, <laughs> but she was an insanely famous actress because of the TV series Wings. Fuck yeah, yeah man. Actually, you know, at the time, she was on It's a It's a Living. Right. Do you remember that show? Yeah. It was a oh, popular, yeah. popular WGN show. Right. And if you were a hick uh, like myself, I knew her because of country radio.
like I still have some of her cassettes. You know, my parents were big into Crystal Bernard's fucking country albums. I was not aware of that at all. I'm not a country fan. I'm just a fucking stupid metalhead. So I have, <laughs> I had no idea. Wow, it's crazy. I'm gonna have to find some of that music and probably oh, it's play good. that episode. It's good stuff, yeah, she, man. She was actually on Happy Days too, prior to all of that. Right. Oh shit, I didn't know that. It's it's really funny how when you dig into this movie more and more, uh, you start to see uh, a lot of musical references and ties brought into this. The Driller Killer himself, who is this leather-clad rockabilly dude played by Atanas Illich, he also, after this, made a bunch of pop records. just that listen to this one he is also the ceo of um wait for it little caesar's pizza what <laughs> shut the fuck up what? yes yep what? And, his fa- and his family owns a-, a famous football team would it be detroit and I-, I can't think of i can't think of the f- they own a football Shit, team man yeah an okay. nfl yeah so he wow. my guess is the family already owned Little Caesar's Pizza at the time, and he was probably like, you know, 20 and like, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to run a company. I want to go be an actor and a rock musician. And right. dad was probably like, all right, well, go do it for five minutes and then come back and <laughs> run the company. Right. <laughs> That's funny. Fuck. God, it's, it's a rabbit hole. This movie's the absolute rabbit hole of confusion because, I mean, it, it, we're not even talking about the movie. We're just talking about all the people that are involved in this thing and we get sidetracked so easily. Um, but back to the movie. So so Atanas plays this leather-bound Freddy Krueger that dances around to – I wouldn't even call it rockabilly music. It's it's like the lamest shit you ever heard in your whole entire life. But he pl- he plays it up like it, it's a bubblegum Elvis Presley running around, hip-thrusting. And he's a tiny dude. He's not a very big guy. But they shot him in a way to make him, you know, with wide-angle lenses appear like he's this menacing Freddy Krueger type character with this and I we have to talk about this if we're going to talk about anything in this movie we have to talk about the drill which is this the the epitome of 80s glam rock this huge red guitar with the neck of the guitar at the end of it this insanely maniacal drill Compared to the first one, there was some gore in the first one. Part two is very in your face 
with the blood and the guts. There are there are scenes where that drill goes through people's chests and you see like bits of guts and stuff hanging off the end of it. <laughs> and, and there's there's a scene where uh, Heidi Kozak has like this huge zit on the side of her head that explodes <laughs> all over and gets in people's mouths. There's flying chickens. There's all sorts of fun. This movie is completely and utterly bonkers and over the top, but that guitar, Evan, that, that fucking guitar. Talk to me about this fucking guitar <laughs> drill. Bit. Man. Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a metal head too, you know, and uh, it's just like the, the cranked up to 11 version of all those insane BC rich guitars you would see in the eighties, just those crazy shapes that all the hair metal guys were rocking. And, and uh, I don't know who the fuck, maybe Jason, you know, uh, who, who designed that thing or something. Um, I, uh, I do. Uh, I'm, I can't, I'm blanking on his name. He's in the documentary, the guy, one of the guys who made it, there were actually three guitars and a tonics came by to practice just holding it. And he spun around and dropped it, the main one, and broke it, shattered it. Oh, great. Good job. Yeah. And then the second one just got broke during production, so there was only one remaining. (laughs) And and, uh, Deborah Brock, the director, took it home and had it in the back of her closet for 20 years, got tired of moving it around, and so she sold it on eBay for $200. Oh, see, Holy I, shit. We, we had had this conversation in the group watch room when we were I showed this because listeners, if you aren't aware for every single episode, I host group watches for the movies that we cover where all the listeners can get together and watch alongside me these movies that we cover. And everyone asked about that, like, well, whatever end up happening And I and maybe because, as we had said at the top of the episode, it's been 10 years. I forgot that it was only 200, 250 dollars this was sold for i was i told them like i think it's for like two grand she sold but 250 dollars damn damn can you imagine now what that would go for oh Oh my god that whoever got it holy shit yeah, yeah. Still, wow. a, a complete seal. Yeah. So, so uh, not only you know the image of this character is over the top. The the drill is completely over the top. Uh, the visual aesthetic, as Jason had said before, is super bubblegum and light. It's almost entirely, except for minus the last twenty minutes of this movie, all takes place during the daytime. This this is not a nighttime kind of horror movie, not a horror movie about people lurking in the shadows. It is a horror movie, quote unquote horror movie about (laughs) the the friendship of a bunch of girls that are in a band together. And as you had said before, Jason, this was kind of what appealed to you about this movie, even more so than the first movie. This centers on a bunch of friends that are just hanging out compared to the first one. Do you like the characters in this one better than the first one? I think the characters in this one are more defined as to who they are in the group. You've got the kind of fun ditzy party girl. You've got the girl that's kind of in charge. You've got the bookworm. It makes sense that they're all friends. Yeah. They're written in a way that you're like, yeah, totally. These girls love each other. Right. Right. And they look yeah. out for each other. I mean, the, the difference in attire between, again, there was five years between the two movies. So uh, maybe these girls speak to me more just because I was a teenager at that time. Right. You know? So I identified because 
the girls that I was seeing in high school during the day looked like those girls, even though those girls were probably 30 when they made it. So, but they just, they dressed, looked and acted like the girls that I went to high school with. Sure. I went to a very suburban high school. <laughs> <laughs> but, they're, but they're super fun. Evan, compared to the first one, how do you see these characters? Uh, yeah, I would agree. They're more defined. You know, we talked about the girls in the first one being allowed to have the space to be characters and all. But the, the truth of Slumber Party 1 is a lot of who those girls are is kind of on you. As a viewer, you kind of got to fill in a lot of the negative space with, with those girls and just catch up uh, after the fact. But you really get a sense of who these girls are and, like Jason said, why they would be friends, you know. And it's a little less cookie cutter, I guess, in that way. Um, they feel they feel very organically together. Like these girls have been together for a long, long time. Uh, whereas the as cool as the girls are in part one, they still could be at camp for the summer, at, you know, in New Jersey. You know what I mean? Sure, sure. And I think a lot of what sets this movie aside from part one and, and makes it not so cookie cutter is the fact of the matter is, is that there is really no narrative structure to this movie whatsoever <laughs> you have you have this the central story if you want to call it a story of these friends that are all going away to i guess at party at a place that they're just practicing <laughs> they're, they're going to sheila's father has just bought, purchased a new condo um the rest of the village is empty dad will not be home for the weekend he has not completely moved in yet they want to go away to just pra practice for their band in a place where they can be loud and not have neighbors complain. That's the basic idea. And it's Courtney's 17th birthday. So the movie kind of centers around her struggle with dealing with issues from the first movie. She's still having reoccurring nightmares of this traumatic experience and the fact that she's now become smitten and her sexuality is starting to bud and there's a boy that's interested in her, but <laughs> she is afraid of going all the way with this boy uh -huh. and nothing really ever happens in this movie until she lets go and goes all the way. Almost. Almost. And right. everyone starts <laughs> dying at that point. The, the, the killer comes out literally in the midst of this house, and it becomes this carnival uh, ride where this guy's spitting out one-liners like Freddy Krueger would be <laughs> spitting out in any of the Nightmare sequels. And it, it's a real kind of like surreal kaleidoscope of a, of a film. Now, I want to posit this because in, in spoilers, folks, if you haven't seen Slumber Party Massacre 2, you're <laughs> way off the beaten path, and I don't even know why you're <laughs> listening to my podcast at all. You should stop this and just go watch it. This is one of those movies where you could sit and ask this question. I want to ask this question to you, Jason, because at the end of the movie, spoilers, cue boarding house spoiler music. This is a warning. Thank you. It's all a dream. Did this movie actually happen? Is it all a dream? Do you think it's all a dream? I think it's all a dream. That's my personal opinion is Courtney has been the one in the mental institution this entire time. Yes. And none of the, none of the events ever occurred. Now in speaking with Deborah Brock, the director and writer, 
she claims that she deliberately left it open to your own interpretation. And this thing is, this ending is hotly debated online because people are, are all like, what the fuck? Right? <laughs> so you're, so you're left to decide, was it all like a fever dream or, or, and she's just been in a loony tune this, uh, she's been in the loony bin this entire time. Or has she now been put into an institution and the driller killer is in fact a, a physical entity? Yes. You know, so I think most people walk away going, oh, this was all just a dream. None of these characters ever existed. Yeah. That's where I always have come out on this movie is that this is a basically an insane asylum film that doesn't reveal itself until the final reel. Evan, where do you come out on this? I'm kind of somewhere between. I think uh, I think that the weekend at the condo kind of happened, minus all the horror, you know. But I think that uh, when she finally lost her virginity, or maybe didn't, I think whatever happened, whether she went all the way with this guy or not, when she got close to that line, it triggered her, for lack of a better word, and she got locked up. She was institutionalized after that weekend. And what we see in the movie is what happened according to her, but is obviously not what really happened. Sure. I think the whole thing is a weird sort of metaphor for losing your virginity and for menstruation. Strangely enough, like I think the whole movie is so bubbly and wet and phallic because because it's about a girl dealing with all those be- becoming a woman issues. And I'm a fucking dude, so maybe I shouldn't even be positing ideas about that, you know. But that's what it feels like to me. Like, all the pivotal moments in the damn movie happen in a bathtub, or there's, like, a weird overlaid shot of bubbling water, and then the drill comes in out of nowhere. Like everything to me seems like she's dealing with the fear of becoming a woman absolutely, and, and crossing that line. And I, I think I think the weekend at the condo happened, uh, but obviously the guy wasn't there, but just it, it fucked her up. And it uh, it was like the culmination of her trauma, I guess, and sent her to the institution. I like this. I I really do like this idea. I do think ultimately at the end, she is in the insane asylum and maybe this is her recollection of this event that had happened. Right. Yeah, that's how, that's how I see it. Yeah. I love this. This is really great. The music in this movie, probably perhaps the most striking thing that's going to come out of this. It's the linchpin of this movie. There's no way you could get around the fact that there are whole section in this movie dedicated to people just playing music or dancing to music. <laughs> yeah. Jason, do you like any of the music that's in this movie? I love <laughs> some of it. There's some, there's the, <laughs> the girls when they're singing in the um, garage towards the beginning of the movie, I know the majority of those words by heart. I love that song. They do one called Tokyo Convertible. Oh, yeah. When their girls are when they're singing right before the massacre, they all kind of come back and they're like, there's like this montage of them singing and dancing around and having fun right before the massacre actually begins. So I like the music at the beginning of the movie because I'm a big Debbie Gibson fan. (laughs) (laughs) 
Now, Evan, do you know who Debbie Gibson is? Oh, yeah, for sure, man. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Grandpa, we know who Debbie Gibson is. (laughs) I am a bubblegum pop person. I love Britney Spears and all that teenage crap. I'm not a fan of when he starts doing the dance in the living room downstairs and shaking a grind in his hips. And then he kind of he's when he's chasing Juliet Cummins around the house, Sheila. Yeah. And, you know, she's all gashed open, whatever that song is. I'm not into that. <laughs> and I don't know if it's because it's the song or if it's because this is it's not one of my favorite parts. I'm just like, this is dumb. I think intentionally so. I think it, it is taking the piss out of slasher movies. I really think the the intention behind this movie was to take the piss out of slasher movies. Oh, totally. Yeah. 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 So to make the, the slasher, we, we had discussed with the first movie that Russ Thorne is kind of a non-entity and that he's just the walking personification of a hard on this movie. Could you do anything worse to, I mean, when you think about slasher movies, they are, as we had stated before, very male gazy. The primary audience are men looking to oogle women that ultimately will have sex and be killed. Could you do it? And they're supposed to identify with the killers because they're always men that stab people with yeah. long things, long pointy things. Now, we have a tiny little like dolled up killer and you basically cut his balls completely off have this song <laughs> that's not really tough at all and he's just kind right. of dancing around and licking his chops and looking like a goof goofball so again we're taking the piss out of everything that makes a slasher movie i'll keep saying that this is a movie that's supposed to be a slap in the face of horror movies there's also that scene with Crystal Bernard that's literally the bathtub sequence from A Nightmare on Elm Street 1. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so we're just ripping off other things and taking them and putting them into this. Now, for a long time, this movie just didn't work for me. I didn't find the humor in it. As I had said before, the music just didn't do it for me at all when I was younger. As I've gotten older and as this is one of those movies and off air, we had kind of talked about it that I've gone back to more and more and more alongside like Friday 13th, part five, uh, where most people just don't like these sequels that just don't kind of go with the flow of what had come before it. This honestly is one of the funnest party movies of the horror genre, you could probably toss on because if you're going <laughs> to, you're going to watch it with people that are uninitiated to what this is, they are going to be slack jawed the entire time. Like what the fuck <laughs> is this movie? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And there's a lot of fun to be had in that. Having again, worked in the video store for a decade, far more girls rented those movies than boys. Uh, Hands down 75% of the renters were young teenage girls. Now for the slumber party massacre hmm. movies or just slasher movies in general, the slumber party movies. Interesting. Interesting. Very inter- well, yeah. you wouldn't think that, right? Well, but- it shouldn't be a shocker. I mean, they're very female centric. Like the vast majority uh-huh. of the screen time is centered around women. It's not about dudes. It's not about dudes sliming to get laid. Right. But not that you know that from looking at the cover. 
Not at all. Absolutely. <laughs> and there's a few characters in Slumber Party Massacre, too, that, you know, just are walking hard on. I mean, Juliet Cummings, basically, for the vast majority of the movie, is in another room getting laid. And we right. just hear her yeah. <laughs> fucking the entire Good time. Morning. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But for the most part, that's it's not really a big aspect of this movie at all. Um, there's very little nudity in this one as well. No, I re- it really is. And we've, I've noted this to people before because most people think that this is a TNA slasher movie. And really, I she only gets naked that, in that one scene. And it's only Julia Cummins. None of the other girls get naked. Nope. Right. Yeah, the nudity in, in part two feels a lot more genuinely like maybe what silly girls are up to at slumber parties. It most definitely is not everybody get their tits out at once. And maybe let's all scrub each other down, you know, Uh, but you might have, (laughs) right. But you might have like the one goofy friend who takes her shirt off during the the pillow fight, you know, and it's not even sexualized. It's fucking stupid. And it's more like that makes it more real. uh, And it it doesn't feel male gazy in the slightest, you know? No, I agree. So at the end of the day, I have to say that of, all of the films in the series, this is the one that I've watched the most because it's just kind of light and fun. And as I've gotten older, I no longer want to watch nihilistic horror films. Yes. Take my, take my horror cred card, take my, my gorehound <laughs> card away. Sorry. I want to smile and have fun in my life. And yeah. slumber party massacre two fits that bill. So for me, I, and I know this is kind of, kind of a shock, especially after we had just said that I think slumber party massacre one is one of the best slashers ever made. This is my favorite one of the series. Jason, is this your favorite one of the series? Not only one of the series, but one of my favorite of all time. One of my favorite movies. Right I'm talking out of every genre. Now, it's not <laughs> in my top 10, but I would probably put it in my top 20 yeah. of all time. And yeah. I've probably seen this movie, I'm gonna without exaggerating, I've probably seen it upwards of 40 times. Holy shit. Run. Holy gotcha. shit. I watch it multiple times a year. That's awesome. Evan, what are your uh, kind of final thoughts on this thing? Man, I, I always call it my least favorite out of the series. But then every time I talk about it with people, I'm like, well, I really love it. And I've it got a lot to say about it, you know, so maybe I should stop saying it's my least favorite. But it's part one is the one I return to over and over again. You know, at least once a year, me and my fiance do a slumber party massacre slumber party. And we'll have people over and throw in your 80s PJs and we'll watch the movie and play the drinking game and shit. And it's just been, you know, part of our lives like for years now. So I can't say that that I revisit part two as much as you guys. And I probably I definitely can't say it's my favorite. So I won't say it's my least favorite anymore, but it's not my favorite. (laughs) Okay. well, having said that this was the super bubblegummy version of the of uh, the slumber party massacre series we're going to now change gears and go to probably one of the darkest most nihilistic grimy (laughs) entries into the slasher genre that there is slumber party massacre 3 takes a complete left turn yet again what a shocker and uh after this break we're going to talk about it so stick around Well, it's 
of the decade. Now, the Driller Killer's back. Slumber Party Massacre, Part 3. few years later, in 1990, Roger Corman came back yet again with the idea to make another Slumber Party Massacre movie, only this time... The director didn't want to follow suit of what it came before, didn't really care, wasn't a horror fan at all. Sally Matson made probably, as I had said before, one of the darkest entries in any slasher franchise that's ever been made, Slumber Party Massacre 3. The story is, yet again, we have a group of friends that are getting together to have a slumber party, but somebody has a different idea of what they're going to do that night because the driller killer is back slowly killing them one by one. And when it's revealed who that driller killer is, Oh boy, things get very uncomfortable very quickly. And by the end of this movie, you feel like you need a shower. (laughs) Yes. Slumber party massacre three is not the fun carnival ride that part two was. 
it is more along the lines of a, of a Joseph Zito film <laughs> where most of this movie takes place during the nighttime. It, it kind of is like a return to the Slumber Party Massacre 1 vibe, but there's none of the satire. There's none of the fun. This is straight up a by-the-numbers, cat-and-mouse, mean-spirited slasher film. Now, it was interesting when we were making the documentary, Jason, and talking to Sally, the director, um, she definitely came across as somebody who was very uncomfortable with having to make a horror movie to begin with because she just wasn't a fan. Yet she makes one of the darkest things that I've seen come out of anyone. Uh, imagine, well, what, when, when you first saw this movie, did it kind of turn you off? It didn't turn me off. I was actually disappointed that it wasn't a true sequel because part two had been a true sequel. So I was a little sad that it was basically all the things that you just said. It, it, it did not have the sense of fun that the first two films had. They actually used the name, same names of the characters from the first film, Jackie, Diane, and it had such a meaner tone to it. As the years have passed, I've come to enjoy it more. I do think that the girls, like the previous chapters, bond nicely. You like all of them. There isn't a bitch in the group. So it truly is yet another case of you don't want them to die. The problem with it is the deaths are a little more sinister. There's two in particular, and I'm going to give a spoiler, some spoilers away. Here's the closer ears. This is a warning. Thank you. There's an, we'll call it an almost rape sequence. And there's also a scene where one of the girls who is the nicest of the bunch is literally beaten on a bed and punched until she's out cold. The first two films kind of celebrated the female body in a way. And this one almost kind of seems to shame them. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. And it comes across in this movie. And I think the reason for it is the direction they decided to go with the killer in this movie is a far more damaged individual than we have encountered before in the series. The first movie, obviously, uh, Russ Thorne is, we've said numerous times now, a parody of a walking hard on. The second killer is just an absolute fucking Freddy Krueger goofball. And in this one, and I, I, I don't know if, Evan, we had talked off air about this or you had made reference, I don't remember at this point, since how this episode has been five hours long, that this one, we have somebody that has been traumatized by sexual molestation when they're younger. And they are trying to come to terms with that maybe – Women aren't their thing, and they're very angry about it. They want to be heterosexual, but they kind of aren't. And because of this, the person is lashing out at women. That's why the violence in this movie is so much meaner towards the women. And it, it, it is very uncomfortable. Evan, I believe this was the first time you had ever seen this movie for this episode. Am I correct? Right, yeah. And what did you think of the 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 tone of this movie in the direction that they went with the killer. <laughs> uh, well, I was shocked, outright shocked, man. I was not expecting that at all. If anything, I expected it to be 
to double down on the goofiness, you know, to go further out there in that way. But because of my taste in horror, because I like stuff that goes for the throat and kicks you in the nuts, um, I loved it. I was like, this is fucking grim, man. This is ugly, so ugly. And I just, I ate every second of it up. I loved it, man. It felt like uh, if the first two feel like women poking fun at the genre, this one more feels like women poking fun at men within the genre. Why do you say that? Uh, I don't know, man. Just the nature of his damaged character and the fact that, I mean, he doesn't do anything differently in terms of how he kills the women and how he treats women than, uh, than Freddie or Jason or any other killer in any other franchise. But the script decided to dig into why. Which is actually a pretty interesting story when uh, in the documentary we, we speak to this, uh, we, we talk to a few of the people that were behind this. Jason, do you want to talk about the, the killer? There's it's only the like the flashbacks are done in in a way that there's these portraits of this uncle character that supposedly had molested our when when it's revealed who the killer is, um, that he had had an illicit relationship with his nephew. Now, uh, do you remember what, why they decided to go that direction with the story? First of all, I remember Sally Madison, who was the director and Catherine Siren, who was the, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing the names properly, but, um, who was the screenwriter. Um, neither of them were horror fans. Basically Roger Corman was saying, you're, I'm going to give you your first film job. And they were like, okay, whatever, we'll do whatever we need to do just so that we can direct a movie or work on a movie. So they went out and I don't remember their reasoning for not continuing the story, but she said, she just, Corman said, I need to make Slumber Party 3 pronto, write it over the holidays. They, they literally got the job on like December 19th and they started shooting the movie like January 3rd. I mean, they had two weeks to write the script, hire the cast. So Corman said, when we come back from Christmas break, I want you rolling on this thing. And so what they did over the break before they started writing was they went out and they rented every classic horror film and kind of tried to roll them together. And one of the films that struck them the most was Last House on the Left. Does that now make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So they said, and what Evan said about it being more male oriented, the more of a poke at the men in this one, I kind it's in, correct me if I'm wrong. This is how I'm going to interpret your comment, because I think you feed exactly into what she was doing. You want to see a woman treated this way? Here you go. You know, right. what, pervert? You know what, pervert? Yeah. You want to see a woman held down and beaten and, oh, you like it rough. You like it when they're treated. Like, right. I, I, is that mm-hmm. Yeah, no, 100 percent, man. And it's like, here's that. And there's no fucking one liners. You know, there's nothing to let up on it at all. It's like, here's that cranked up to 11 as ugly as it would be. You know, there's nothing about it to try and make it cool or fun in any kind of way. As they Mm. did in the first one where, you know, they gang up on him and he starts really getting fucked up toward the end of this movie. The killer, he's like blinded and beaten, but he gets angrier and meaner and he treats the women even worse. The worse he gets treated, the angrier and more uh, extreme he lashes out. Right. So, I mean, there is that feminist angle still going through this movie, even though this by far is the most straightforward male gazy slasher 
of the entire series. There are, though, if you want to interpret it, you want to go in and really break this down. There are still, as Jason, you're bringing up, there are still those points where you could look at this and interpret it as a metaphor for violence against women. Yes, oh, absolutely, right. man. Yeah. Now, the, the first kill, uh, you know, they, they leave the beach and that girl walks to her car, whatever she gets in the car and driller killer gets her from behind her driver's seat. And it's that close up of the drill, like going in and out, in and out, in and out. And you're like, Jesus, it could, you know, could you have shot that any uglier? At least in the first one, you just see Russ Thorne like off screen or maybe just poke the drill in. But no, part three is like, let, let's make it as sexual as possible. Oh, right. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it is 100% sex and violence mm-hmm. yeah. compared to the first films. Yeah, right. there's no doubt about it. And there's, unlike the other two that aesthetically had a lot going for it, this is far more your straight to video 90s fare. Nothing is super dynamic about the look of the film. No, no. The, all of the music is super stock. There's not really a score that you're going to remember about this. The violence is really in your face. And even though we had said there's some metaphor to it, it's pretty direct what they're doing. I mean, there's one person who's literally killed in a bathtub with a a vibrator that's plugged into the wall. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But like all of that is what I like about it. I like that it kind of pulled the gloves off and was like, let's just fucking crank it up. You know, let's stop fucking around and, and go all the way. And yeah, I don't know. I liked all that about it. I don't think there was anywhere else to go. You, I don't think you could. The third entry couldn't have been at the same level. You know what I mean? They had to either go up or, or down. <laughs> and they decided to go up, I guess. They well, And they really, she's, it's, it, it is largely a remake of the first film, too. Oh, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you saying that their characters names are the same. I didn't notice that. And I'm like, yeah. damn, well, Slumber 3 must be one of the first sort of weird soft reboots yeah oh like evil dead too but you know what i mean um as far as slashers go well it plays on that fact that these series and these types of movies which is largely one of the reasons why i'm not a super huge slasher fan are carbon copies of each other right there's really not much that differentiates friday the 13th part one from friday the 13th part six other than maybe intent. They're basically the same kind of movie. That's why it's hard to talk about films of that nature for me, because they're all essentially the same fucking movie, just redressed. Right. Have you, Jason, have you ever really felt that way? I know you're a much bigger fan of these movies than I am. Uh, Yes. Uh, I would agree with you. They're all redressed, but I could talk about them for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> well, I mean, that's not to say that th- that they're they're not like comfort food. You know, they're not like, yeah, I can pop these on and just ha- turn my brain off for a little bit. And, you know, maybe I just get new people. So it keeps it a little fresh. It keeps it a little new. But it, as a genre itself, one thing that's always felt kind of dead to me is that the fact that they are so similar that there's not really much to grasp on which is why the slumber party massacre movies have always appealed to me more because they seem to be speaking towards something other than i'm a dude that just wants to fuck women and kill them and that's all this is about where i gotta say slumber party massacre 3 is probably my least favorite of the series for that fact that even though there are there is a central metaphor there, it does just feel like a carbon copy 
cut and paste, mean spirited slasher film. I will say though that in in line with the first two films, the girls themselves are very enjoyable. Oh in yeah, film. and yeah. that is why it it it's. I think the film is more effective in that you don't you really don't want these girls to experience what they're experiencing again right. because the brutality is so intense in this particular one. You're like none of these girls deserve this. Not that no. I'm not saying that women should ever deserve it. But, you know, I'm just saying. Well, isn't that kind of the point of it, though? Isn't that what we were speaking towards before is that this is just a man that's asserting his will upon these women. And it's all his issue. It's not their issue. They haven't done anything wrong. It's all him. Yes. Oh, totally agree with that. For me, I I like this group of characters probably the best, I think, because they – as a consumer of fiction and as a writer, I lean towards characters who are more outside of society who feel like I don't like square fucking characters. And uh, none of none of the groups of girls feel square. Right. They all smoke dope and are in bands or whatever. But the girls in part three really kind of feel outside to me they really feel fucking cool and kind of gangster you know what i mean like they're just doing what they're up one of them's a stripper you know what i mean yeah <laughs> like uh they're just they they kind of appeal to me more as a group than than the other girls do they're a little less clean interesting do you feel that way jay i i i see what he's saying yeah the girls in this one are they're not as bubbly Right. Um, but it might just been the are, time, right? It might have been the difference between 1990 and, and the 80s. I don't know. And I and I will say that these girls, so I graduated in 91. And so these are girls that I would have graduated with, right? In if, if this were in reality. And they did feel like that was the attitude. It's, it's interesting. There was that shift towards the fashion was starting to change. We were becoming more interested in supermodels. The term supermodel was coming into vogue. You had feminism itself was kind of changing. The slasher movies really weren't being made at that point. Slumber Party 3 was really one of the very few slashers being made in 1990. And, the, and we were heading towards grunge, the grunge era. So 1990, there was a shift in music, there was a, sh- a beginning. I should say there was a beginning of a shift in music, a beginning of a shift in the way that the clothing looked. There was a beginning of a shift in the generation, the attitude. So you can see that even though the th- we're only three years difference between part two and part three, socially in the real world, there was a shift happening, and you can maybe see it. Right, we were becoming darker. <clears throat> we, uh, right, overall because the eighties were bubblier time right and the 90s were not (laughs) right no absolutely not and and there there was kind of a reason for you know the end of the slasher craze because oversaturation killed this genre there was just there was nowhere else for it to go and i think evan you spoke to that earlier it's it's a perfect statement they're just where else are you going to go with this kind of thing that's why trilogies work so well you you keep it to three movies you can experience what you need in this series these three movies you get every kind of flavor that you need possible with this kind of stuff so i really think this is i'm glad it ended here um this ultimately is my least favorite of the series i don't actually agree with you guys 
these are my least favorite characters of the series. <laughs> I, I I like some of the some of the the ladies are really bubbly and they're kind of fun, but the dudes are just there's nothing to them. Oh, there's the, nothing there for the guys. No, right. there's nothing yeah. about the dudes. And I mean, yeah, okay, that's not that's kind of the point, right? I mean, that's the point of this movie. But I uh, even the killer is. When he's revealed, it, it's kind of hokey and it's it's kind of cliche. And the scene, the the main scene that everyone talks about and that you kind of made reference to earlier is this the Maria Ford near rape sequence that happens. This is a sequence that ultimately wasn't originally shot for the movie. It was the movie was shot and it was too short. And Roger Corman said, "Hey, you need a couple more scenes in this movie." And they went and they shot this sequence. And uh, Sally, the director, recalls in the documentary how uncomfortable she was about doing this. It, do you feel and this is going to be kind of my last point before we wrap this up. Do you feel, Jason, that that scene adds to this movie or does it detract at all from the overall thing? I think it kind of solidifies a little bit of the metaphor of what's really going on in this movie. I think it solidifies the metaphor, but I think it detracts the movie from the fans of the first two because the, it does set a completely different tone. When I saw it the first time, I was kind of, I don't know if the word repulsed would be right, but, and I, because I'm a fan of Last House on the Left, but it seemed out of place to me for this particular series. Mm-hmm. You know, I can sit down and watch Last House on the Left and appreciate it for being the intense classic that it is. But that particular sequence here didn't seem within spirit of the rest of the series because it was so mean. And he doesn't, I mean, he beats the shit out of her, you know? And not only that, when she goes to defend herself, when he's going to bring the drill down on her, I mean, she holds on the drill and her pieces of her hands are flying all over the place. Yeah, and you know, in you, you can see that in reality, she was really getting dragged across that carpet because yeah. she is red. Her ass and legs are red. She is really getting hurt while they're making the film. It's not makeup, and so I think there's a lot that goes into that particular scene. That just for me, it kind of soured it for me a little mm-hmm. bit. The rest of the film is just kind of slasher movie-ish. Yeah. You know, and, and I did speak to the the sequence in the bedroom where he beats the living shit out of Susie. Mar- uh, Maria Claire is her real name. She's kind of the frumpy girl in the movie. And so it's even crueler because this girl has done nothing. She's not even over- overtly sexual. She's this frumpy girl, and she's just trying to protect herself and her friends. And then this guy comes in. And beats her until she's unconscious on the bed. And then he's gonna he's gonna drill her right in the crotch until Maria Ford comes out of the closet and busts him over the head with a lamp. You know? So <laughs> that those two scenes uh, kind of brought it down for me, mm-hmm. I guess. And again, fan of Last House on the Left because of that's what that movie is. That didn't seem to me to be part of what Slumber Party should be. Yeah, right. Makes sense. Yeah, I, it totally makes sense to me. So wrapping this up, Jason, ultimately, where do you come out on this one? It's a film of the three. It's my least favorite. I still appreciate it. I still watch it. So and I've, I like part two. Um, I've come to enjoy it more. And I tend to look away, honestly, when that scene comes up. 
Mm-hmm. I don't want to say that it makes it up into a bad movie. No, I mean it's, it's a horror. If it's you want to call it a horror movie, that's what lends it into being a horror movie. So you can also look at it from that angle. So it it has moments of great power. It also has moments where it's kind of boring. Yeah. So I couldn't agree with you more. I feel exactly the same way. And I know a lot of you know there's at times this podcast has been called a ghoul podcast because I watch a lot of ghoul <laughs> movies. As I get older, the less and less I want to watch nihilism. And the less or less I want to watch aggressive sexual horror and aggression towards women, not only because I have three daughters of my own, I just personally feel that the time and place for that is past in horror. And I'm glad that we've kind of went away from it with the horror Mm -hmm. that's being made now. Now, um, I'm not one to go back and say we need to cancel movies that do this kind of thing. People that think that can go fuck themselves. Art is art and is a reflection of time, so let's move past it. But this is going to be the the one that I watch the least. I still think, compared to a lot of things of its ilk, it's an extremely effective horror film. It's creepy. It does creep me out. It is intense in all the right ways and has a good overall tone to it. But it is my least. It's more the status quo than the other two films. So I'm going to say it's, you know, probably my least favorite. Evan, your final thoughts on this. Yeah, it would be probably middle of the road for me if it wasn't so mean and ugly. And I just really like that, especially when I'm not expecting it, you know, which I wasn't because I like you. I don't seek out those kind of movies. I I wouldn't call myself a ghoul. And uh, I'm definitely not. I'm not like a rape revenge dude in the slightest. I fucking if I know it's that kind of movie, I will avoid it. Amen. Um, But so I wasn't expecting that. And when they hit me with that, I was like, oh, fuck, this is bad, man. Like, this is making me feel bad. And I like that. Uh, that's horror. That's what horror is supposed to do. And I, I felt something at the end of that movie, you know. Uh, and I think when they were writing it, that was their intent. You're not supposed to like watching that. Right. You yeah. know, you're supposed to feel bad that you're watching this occur. Right. Right. Well, in that case, it's extremely successful. Hell yeah. Yeah. And like you, like you said, it brings it back to horror. You know, the second one is sort of a surreal kind of goofy parody, um, which is still a whole lot of fun. But this one is just fucking horrific. So, well, folks, there it is. We finally did it, Jason. We talked about the Slumber Party Massacre movies. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, my guests your favorite portion of the show, folks. My <laughs> guests are going to shame their ever-loving asses off towards you. So you are forced by law to stick around and listen to this. And if you don't, your phone's going to explode and melt your brain into goo or some unknown shit. You're going to be turned into those aliens from They Live. So you don't want that to happen. So stick around. Come in, damn it. You're sure a punctual bastard. Hey there, smut lovers. Balls deep in a dirty little addiction to movies where werewolves kidnap and rape women for Dracula? Or perhaps you're a kinky pink freak who loves to watch mad men and women tie up and punish unsuspecting suckers, pouring hot wax on their aching naked flesh and driving them around the living room like pretty little ponies? Wait, I know. You love nothing more than a sweet, topless self-flagellation session before the cross following oral indiscretions with a saucy, satanic sister, you secret and exploitation fan. 
We cordially invite your sinful self to join our shameless selves for the podcast at Orgy Castle. Exercise all that salty deviance from your system with hosts Paula and Derek as they pick one smutty film a week to indulge in and discuss. The podcast at Orgy Castle is on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and anywhere you can find podcasts. Go. Subscribe. Come as many times as you want. Nobody will know but you and your headphones. so happy Jason that we were able to finally do this I've been wanting to do this for years I've been not only wanting to do this particular show for years it's been a while since I've had you on the podcast so thank you so much for coming on yeah I gotta come on more often you talk about 80s horror especially franchises and I'm there witchcraft baby oh well that's (laughs) done don't get your don't get your dick all in a bunch we're not doing any more witchcraft movies unless fucking 16 will be out soon Dude, 16 was already made. Yeah. Wait, 18. no, 17. Excuse me. Right? <laughs> well, 18, I, th- I thought. Or, or what? Oh, they're shit. making another one? Don't tell me this is true. What? Uh, they will. They will. I think 18. No, you guys are full of shit. That ain't happening. That ain't, I, I'm ignoring this. <laughs> this conversation never happened. It's, we're, we're moving the fuck on. But we did talk about in the group watch room that there was a request for us to do the sorority house massacre movies. So if you boys are are willing to come back on, maybe in the next couple months, we could have an episode, which will be much shorter than this one. It will be. And can I tell you how weird it is? I literally just watched the Rody House Massacre 2 three days ago. Oh, shit. So it's meant to be. It's meant to be. So uh, listeners of the show. We'll, I'll bring these boys back on in a month or two, and we'll talk about the Sorority House Massacre movies, because 2020 is the year of Astro Radio Z being about movies we actually want to watch. No more <laughs> Andy Milligan movies. So uh, <laughs> this is the portion of the show where my guests shamelessly shill the fuck out of you, Mr. Evan Shelton. Please shill to my audience. Oh, right, my man. Uh, I do a podcast called The Lurking Transmission, which you can find anywhere that podcasts are found for the most part. The Lurking Transmission is, I like to call it the black metal creep show. We're a horror anthology podcast for people who like gnarly, scary fucking metal, like black metal and death metal. So if you're into morally repugnant shit like that... um, Come and check us out. We've got plenty of non-white, non-hetero characters, and our characters don't whine and cry and hide in closets. Um, I do another thing where I blab about occultism and kooky, esoteric shit in films, and that is called Ritual Light and Sound. So if you want to hear me talk about weird fucking horror movies where people summon demons and shit, check that out. Ritual Light and Sound is available where most podcasts are as well. We're on Twitter, all of that. Along with Astro Radio Z, we have you do a segment on here for, of Ritual Light and Sound, like an offshoot called Some Old Devil Shit. <laughs> exactly, yeah. It's some Old Devil Shit is strictly about satanic movies. Love it. So, yeah, check me out on Astro and elsewhere. <laughs> and you want to tell the listeners about your Patreon? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, our Patreon is called The Lurking Transmission Presents. So that is like an umbrella Patreon that covers The Lurking Transmission, Ritual Light and Sound, my movie thing, and another serial horror thing I do called Weird Out Here. So if you want to 
uh, toss me some bucks and uh, experience some cool underground horror, check us out. The Lurking Transmission presents on Patreon. Awesome. Thank you for coming on, man. I was I'm really happy you were able to come on. I love hearing your voice on this show. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Derek. It's been a blast, dude. Now, Jason, my dear friend, Derek, <laughs> <laughs> please, you and I talk almost every day. We have so much going on right now. What do you actually want to shill? What do you want to release to the public that you can release uh, to the public that's happening? Okay, well, okay. <clears throat> Y'all got five hours? Here we go. <laughs> um, after much begging, and I don't understand why, uh, from people who probably have never seen it, and this is why they're begging, they will not beg me after they see it. Um, I am finally, 25 years later, putting Mark of the Devil 666 out on DVD. It will be available for the first time on DVD, uh, both in its original form and in a much more watchable cut. Thanks to Mr. Carey, July 7th. So two versions of the film on one DVD with some extras. Uh, The same day we are re-releasing Safe Inside, which was my Is There a Monster in the House movie, um, shot in my own home based on my own home because my own home is a shit show (laughs) (laughs) home itself kind of becomes a character within the movie and the script was written because of my home so that is also coming out uh same if you if you already own it on dvd it's just a re-release of the same disc that had already been out just with new artwork um the artwork is fucking awesome by the way it is it's really i hired eric arse now to do uh, artwork for all of my re-releases and he is rocking it out. Um, then in August, you will buy my, my classic documentary, which is one of the most, one of the proudest things I've ever done. Again, with a big hand to Mr. Derek Carey for that, making me look good, um, is Screaming in High Heels will be back out on DVD, this time with me not getting ripped off financially by the distributor because I'm putting it out myself this time. I won't name the distributors so they can't sue me, but I will say they can go fuck themselves. I can I can double down on that as an investor in this film. They can go fuck themselves. So support me and Mr. Carey and all the other investors by buying the DVD and Blu-ray for Screaming in High Heels that covers the careers of Linnea Quigley, Brink Stevens, and Michelle Bauer and how they created the Scream Queen era of the 80s. Then in uh, early September, I put out a twenty, uh, sorry, a fifteenth anniversary edition of October Moon, plus uh, double feature with the sequel, November Sun, um, with some extra new features on it. And that same day, I will be putting out a boxed set of all of my films minus Sleepless Nights, which is ironic because that's what we're talking about on this podcast. <laughs> Yeah, you can still pick up the documentary on any of the Scream Factory releases that have come out for the Slumber Party Massacre. I'm not sure if the triple feature pack is still in circulation. It might be out of print, but the Blu-rays still have the documentary on them. In pieces. So if you're so the Sleepless Nights was made in three parts. We presented it originally as a full feature. They just break it apart by whatever film is on the disc. So um but that is the only film that will not be included in my box set, which we I believe we just named. Remind me, Derek. Unlucky 13. Yes. Jason Paul Columns, tape to 
digital collection. Yes. Uh, I was going to leave that up to you because it was a mouthful. I told you as such when we were discussing, you were throwing out <laughs> names and stuff. I was just like, Jesus, I can't even say that. That's just way too much. <laughs> it's like a fucking Rob Zombie album title. Right. <laughs> so anyways, long story short, I will be putting on September 1st. I will be putting out a box set of all of my movies on DVD um, with some new features, I guess. But it will contain the feature features that were in the previous releases. So if you just want everything, then wait until September to buy the box set. If you only want Mark of the Devil 666 or just Safe Inside or just High Heels, then, you know, go for those. I think um, that's, oh, and in the non-horror world, <laughs> uh, I am making a documentary right now called Everything I Need to Know I Learned from the Letter People. So if you grew up with the letter people, this is the documentary for you. <laughs> nice. Nice. <clears throat> only five hours, folks. This episode's only going to be five hours long, and it's mostly <laughs> Jason Paul Collum shilling on this thing. What? <laughs> <laughs> no. You, I don't know. I looked at my clock. I took up four minutes, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Jason, thank you yeah. for coming on. I love you, my brother. It's good to have you. Hopefully, we can uh, make this happen soon. Coming soon. Sorority House Massacre 1 and 2 on Astro Radio Z. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to Astro Radio Z. Astro Radio Z 144 was recorded, drilled through the crotch, produced, pummeled toplessly with pillows, and edited by Derek Carey. For more information, and to talk to the hosts online, join the All The Gimmicks Facebook group, and slash or find us on Twitter at Astro Radio Z. Music played on this episode, which we urge you to go purchase and support can be purchased through the supporting links provided in the show notes. Twist and Scream, Louis Khalif. Wednesday Week, Why? Slumber Party Massacre Main Theme, Ralph Jones. Don't Touch Me There, Crystal Bernard. Let's Live Together, Atanas. Don't Let Go. If you would like to hear more than your regular releases of Astro Radio Z, go over to our Patreon page. For the low price of $1 a month, you will receive monthly bonus episodes and much more. Check out what we have to offer and join us for the ultimate ARZ experience at patreon.com forward slash Astro Radio Z. Enjoy the remaining moments of your mortal existence, Astro Zombies. Astro Radio Z will return next month, from the bowels of hell to your blown out speakers. <laughs>